Turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah. Um, I'm, uh, my name is Adam Thomas. I'm a pastor for teaching uh, here at Wyatt, if you're, if you're new here. Um, we're making our way through a series on uh, the minor prophets. In fact, we're, we're wrapping it up. We're second to last uh, minor prophet. Um, and we covered the first six chapters of Zechariah last week, and we'll be looking at the remaining uh, chapters, 7 through 14, uh, this week. Uh, in a matter of some introduction that we didn't get to cover last week, um, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets, checking in at 14 chapters, so it really it doesn't so much fit in that category. Uh, we know they're called minor prophets because they're short, uh, but this one, this particular minor prophet is actually quite large. Um, it's a post-exilic uh, prophet, which means that uh, this is uh, happening, he's, this is being written after the Babylonian captivity when uh, some people, the Israelites, come back to Jerusalem or are free to come back to Jerusalem and kind of reestablish uh, their nation uh, to rebuild uh, the temple. Um, Haggai, the book that we, we see preceding this, which is actually very short, only two chapters, is about the rebuilding of the temple. And Zechariah is much more uh, in-depth, and it's really more of a look at God's relationship with his people uh, and with the heart of his people. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult. Uh, many consider it one of the most difficult of the Old Testament books to interpret. There's just lots of symbolic language, and it's sometimes hard uh, to... Uh, uh, to know exactly what all of that language means, especially being removed from their their context and what was historically going on uh, at the time. Um, and I found that to be true. I, this is, to me, one of the hardest, probably the hardest uh, of the minor prophets that we've looked at. Yet, in the midst of these very difficult uh, verses to interpret, man, it is as if constantly Jesus is just showing up in the pages of Zechariah just so clear, like it's almost like he's there waving at us. I mean, it is so clear that there's no denying these amazing prophecies that are concerning Jesus Christ. I would say um, this book is probably second only to Isaiah as far as uh, language and prophecies that are pointing towards Jesus Christ. It is quoted a whopping 50 times in the New Testament. Uh, again, only second only to Isaiah um, as quoted in the New Testament. Um, and I think our best, time, uh, our best way to spend our time uh, is to really look at these just places in uh, the remaining uh, chapters of Zechariah when Jesus is just so clearly uh, coming through and so clearly indicated. But first, the, the chapter 7 and 8 really deal with our need of Christ. Uh, so chapter 7, it starts off with some guys deciding, let's find out about what we need to do with the fasts. They have been doing these fasts to kind of mourning the fact that the temple wasn't being built, and, and so they were just doing these fasts to, to, to kind of to mourn that fact. Well, now the temple's halfway built, like things are looking up, great things are happening, and so they're like, do we really need 
to continue to, to be fasting. And so verses 1 through 3 kind of tell us that, that they're going uh, to, to inquire of Zechariah and of God. Uh, do we need to keep doing these fasts? And here's what God replies in, in, in verse 4 in chapter 7. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you, ate, when you eat and when you drink, you do, not eat for your, uh, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? And so God says, hey, you know, you've been doing this fasting, but it, was it really for me? I mean, when you really look at your religious ritual i'm looking at your heart and i think you were you know it and he doesn't think he's god he knows that they were really doing it for other reasons it wasn't truly to worship god or to truly mourn the fact that the temple wasn't rebuilt yet it was for other reasons and he says hey and even when you're eating and and even when you're full of joy it's really for your is it not for yourselves and then he says, hey, in verse 8, he says, he kind of lets them know what, what I'm more interested in. He's basically saying, you know, the fast, let's talk about what's the bigger problem and what I want more than your fast. This is what he says. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, uh, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And so this is that common theme that we, see, we have seen in the Mount of Prophets of, hey, you're caught up in ritual because it's easy. It's easy to just go out there and not eat. It's easy to offer this sacrifice or that sacrifice. What's hard is to really be a person of righteousness works of someone who goes out and does justice who doesn't do wrong who who takes care of the widow who 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 looks after the orphan that's that's what i care about even more than your fasting and your religious rituals and yet we see that god is not encouraged by how they are especially their fathers have behaved towards his word he's basically saying i've been telling you this for a long time if we were to go back and review what we've looked at in the Mount of Prophets, we've seen time and time again, God was like, you're, yeah, you're, you're doing some rituals, but you're either caught up in idolatry of other gods or you're doing wrong and evil to other people. He says in verse 11, he says, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets therefore great anger came from the lord of hosts and we can look down on them we can say man those are horrible people right they were just doing their rituals for themselves and but do we not do this are we not guilty of coming to church and singing the songs and just coming because we want to be with everybody else do we always truly have at the center of our hearts the worship of God? Do we? And our, when we 
know, because many of us have gone to church all our lives, we know what we're supposed to be doing. We know how we're supposed to love others and care for one another. One another. But are we not like them? It says here that they stuffed their ears. So basically they said, na, 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 na. We don't want to hear. We don't care what you have to say, God. We don't want to have to do all the hard stuff that you've commanded. And this is human nature. God says, these, this is the people that I'm dealing with. The people that care more about ritual and care more about themselves than doing the things of justice that I've commanded them. There are people that, and he says here, just this incredible, painful language of, your hearts are as hard as diamonds. There's no getting through. And so you would think in Zechariah 8, we would have, you know, he, he closes chapter 7, he says, I'm angry. And so you would expect there to be this this great uh, outpouring of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to hurt you this way, I'm going to pour out my wrath that way, but that's not at all what happens. In fact, he promises wonderful things for Jerusalem and Judah. In Zechariah 8, uh, verse 8, it says, And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Then verse 15, so again, have I proposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So God... Basically, God says, listen, your hearts are as hard as diamonds. You've got your fingers in your ears not listening to me. You're not going to do it, so I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to pour out my blessings on your lives, and I'm going to turn you into these people that I've called you to be, people that love justice, people that love righteousness. In verses 18 and 19, he actually says, you know those fasts that you're asking about? I'm going to bless you so much that we're going to turn those feasts of uh, those that fasting into feast of joy, feast of celebration. I'm fixing to turn it all upside down. You're worried about mourning. There's not going to be any mourning because I'm going to do great and mighty things for you. We also see this this amazing verse in verse 23 that it's not just going to be for Israel. It says in verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So it's going to be for the, na the nations get to tag along on these, this great blessing that God's going to bring to Israel. But how would these good things come? How would these promises be fulfilled they would be fulfilled through the messiah the messiah that we see time and time in zechariah there in the pages waving at us i, I think there are three major pictures of the messiah in uh, zechariah we we looked at the at the first one last week the branch that's talked about the branch that's going to come out 
and be this ruler that's going to rule the world. And then the two that we're going to look at today is the humble king and the good shepherd. So we are introduced to this humble king in Zechariah 9. As people that are hard-hearted, that have hearts of diamonds, people with our fingers in our ears, we need a God who will come in and be a humble king who will fight for us. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9, we, we have this description that there's going to be punishment for all the people around Israel and Judah, around Judah and Jerusalem that have mistreated them. God says, hey, it's going to be, go very bad for them. I'm going to come and I'm going to punish them. They're going to be a problem for you no more. And so we would, we would expect, after we, we see that all these people, are, these surrounding nations are going to be harmed and, and vengeance is going to be taken upon them, we, we expect to see something fearful. And yet in verse 9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So it's like you could brace yourself at this point, this king who is, who is going to do all of this, like, like we're about to be introduced to him, and so we expect, like, man, he's got to be a king with an army, okay? A king riding on a war horse, right, with swords, just ready to destroy all that stand in his way. Is that who we see? Actually not. It says, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wait, what? We're, we're waiting on this guy that's going to, this king that's going to show up and just tear all these countries apart and be our salvation and, and be our protector and you introduce us to a guy? To a king that's making his way on a donkey? And of course, we know that this is, that we know this as the prophecy of the triumphal entry recorded for us in Matthew 21 and John 12. This, this moment, days before Christ's death, when he comes into Jerusalem. And it's, it's even worse than him just riding on a donkey. This king is so poor, he has to borrow a donkey. And he comes into Jerusalem, and he, but he does come in triumphantly. These people are, are throwing, uh, uh, throwing branches before him. They're swinging branches and they're, they're greeting him as king. This humble king on a donkey. We see these, these great things about this righteous king i mean can you imagine when we've dealt with the kings throughout the old testament and most of them were not much right they were evil they were horrible and and then we see here that this righteous king is coming coming a good king that does not tolerate evil and do evil himself and that he's going to bring salvation but that he's going to be humble and mounted on a donkey. But just the same, despite this humility, 
We're going to see, we see here that he's not a pushover king, but is a very strong king that even through his humility, he brings peace through the world, to the world. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So the war horse has no, is no competition against this humble king on the donkey. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we see it's not just about a ruler in a Jerusalem, it's about a ruler to the ends of the earth. And then verse 14, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread the, down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. Um, according to MacArthur, John MacArthur, what, what he says we have here is really a con condensed version of the two comings of Christ. All right, we have first the first coming, which is represented by the king on the donkey, the, the king in humility. The king that's, that's coming into Jerusalem saying, hey, come to me. With arms wide open, no weapons in hand, come to me. And then we also see this conqueror that is going to put an end to all evil, which does involve coming on the white horse that we see in Revelation with the sword in his hand and, and, and his power from his mouth. So which is he? Is he the humble king on the donkey or is he the warrior on the war horse? Well, he's both. Right now in, in this age of, of the church, in this moment we're living in, he is still the humble king on the donkey saying, come. But one day he will come as the warrior king and you don't want any part of him unless you're behind him unless he's going out to make peace and you're behind him you don't want to be in front of him everyone is going to get christ eventually everyone's going to get christ eventually think about that everyone is going to get christ eventually you'll either get christ as the humble king on the donkey saying, come. Or you will get Christ as the warrior that's coming to put an end to you. Because you have rejected him. The question is, which, which are you going to pursue? So not only do we see this humble king that, that comes to fight for us, we see our need of a good shepherd who will lead us and who will die for us. In the next several chapters, we see this picture emerge of the shepherding of God's people. And we see bad shepherds, and then we see a good shepherd. In chapter 10, he compares the people to sheep. It says in verse 2, Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. 
And so we see here that we are sheep. The biblical imagery uh, is, uh, is, is absolutely clear. Right? We see in Isaiah 53, 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Okay? The, the Bible describes us, and even in going in the New Testament, describes people as sheep, as people who, if we don't have a leader, we're in bad shape. Okay? So that's the picture presented here of God's people here. They're sheep. And we also see that there's some bad shepherds that God is angry at, leaders of his people. And there's actually three uh, references, um, or a reference to three uh, bad shepherds. Um, we don't know exactly the identity or who they represent. But there will come a great leader that will lead the people. We see in verse 4, from him shall come the cornerstone, right? We, we just sang about Christ as the cornerstone. From him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. So we see already this promised one that's going to come and be the person who all the hope, who is the cornerstone of all hope for the people who wander. In chapter 11, Zechariah is given the instruction to represent the good shepherd. It says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the, of the flock doomed to slaughter. Okay, Zechariah was to care for those who were doomed to slaughter. I love that picture because it's an accurate picture of mankind. That apart from, from a good shepherd... We are, shep we are sheep that are doomed to slaughter because of our sin. The wages of our sin is death. We're doomed for slaughter. And Zechariah was instructed to care for those doomed to slaughter. And so Zechariah puts an end to the bad shepherds. I think it's, uh, it's interesting. There's this theory that maybe these three shepherds represent the prophet, priest, and kings that the good shepherd would replace once and for all all of those offices, one in Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king. Uh, it sounds like an interesting uh, theory to me. They're not definite on it, but it, it's, it's interesting. And so he would be this good shepherd, but we see here in the story that after a while, man, the sheep are very difficult to deal with. They're tired of Zechariah. Zechariah is tired of them. Uh, Zechariah has two staffs. One of them is written favor and the other unity. He ends up breaking both staffs to kind of show uh, the frustration of, of being the shepherd of these horrible sheep. And so finally he says, I'm done. I am done. Now you can give me some severance pay here. Okay, people, I've been a good shepherd here, so... You can either pay me or not. I don't care, but I'm done. And you know what the people decide? That, that he's worth 30 pieces of silver. This good, faithful shepherd who's done away with the bad shepherds, and he's been good to them. He's, they say he's only worth 30 pieces of silver. And this is what, if your, uh, if your animal or something accidentally killed someone else's slave, that's what you would pay, 30 pieces of silver. It's not much uh, in that day. 
And we see here that the people take the money and they take it to, to the temple and then it ends up being given to the potter. Does any of this sound familiar? Okay, 30 pieces of silver, silver Judah, uh, Judas sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He goes to the temple and then what? It's, bought, it, it's used to buy the potter's field. Like, this is amazing symbolism that just points to what happens to Christ. And again, we would say, I can't believe they would treat the Good Shepherd like that. But I want to ask you something, because I've asked myself uh, in looking at this text, what is Christ worth to me? Be honest. If Christ were to say, pay me my wages, pay me what you believe I'm worth, really in the actions of your life, In the way that you're living your life, how much would you say that the Good Shepherd's truly worth to you? And yet, once again, God's rejection of His sheep is not a permanent one. In chapter 12, we see verses 1 through 9, again, God continuing to make promises that He's going to make them victorious. And then in verse 10, it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So this is God speaking. So who is he talking about? You've pierced me. So how do you pierce God? Obviously, you pierce God by piercing God. The Son and the crucifixion and the spear that pierced the heart of Christ. But even more than that, we see that, that God Himself guides the blade that strikes the shepherd. In chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who's speaking to the sword? Who's telling the sword to strike the shepherd? God is. This is consistent throughout Scripture when it says it was His will to bruise his son. And in Acts, when it says it all happened according to the purpose and plan of God, that God orchestrated here, he speaks the sword, he awakens the sword that is going to strike his son. It was the father who planned it out, and it was the son who freely offered himself to be struck down as our good shepherd. What amazing love 
does the Father and the Son and the Spirit, do they have for us to orchestrate and to speak the sword into the heart of God Himself? And then we see the kingship of the one who was crucified. In chapter 14, verse 9, it says this, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. The branch the, from the root of Jesse, that branch that would come and be the king that would rule the world. That humble king on the donkey who would one day become the warrior king. That good shepherd that was struck down will one day be the king who will rule and put an end to all rebellion on the earth. Not one square centimeter will remain in rebellion. He will stomp out all rebellion and he will rule. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? You need to make sure that you have turned to that humble king that is offering himself saying, Offer, my, offer myself up to, for you, humbly. I would ask you, Christian, as our musicians come, I would ask you, Christian, are you, you do you truly value the good shepherd in your life, the one who, who guides you and directs you are you like the Israelites who had their fingers in their ears? Or who had their hearts hardened? Are you one who remains? One who is worshiping God through a heart that has Him at the center and has Him as, not as 30 pieces of silver, but as the treasure of your life. I ask you to please stand. And we'll pray and I'll ask you to respond to God's word, however he has spoken to you this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the branch. I thank you for the humble king. I thank you for the good shepherd who offered himself so freely for us. so that we might have life, so that we, so that our diamond hard hearts could be broken. So that our ears could be unplugged and that we would desire to live lives of justice. God, thank you for what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.